Hello, 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 and welcome to Canadian Made, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry. Today on the podcast, I'm so excited because we are talking to music supervisor Kaya Pino. In this episode, we talk about some of the common mistakes that get made all of the time when trying to clear music. Kaya also gives some really good background on the rights holders that are involved in the music clearance process. And so if you are intimidated by clearing music or you have a song to clear and you just don't know what to do, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, let's get into it. So I think let's first start with talking about the roles and responsibilities of a music supervisor for those people who are, you know, less familiar with this type of role or maybe don't, you know, engage with your kind. Yeah. (laughs) So um, a music supervisor is in charge of all things music for a production. So that starts from pre-production while they're filming and then majority of the job is post-production. So that will cover if anybody is singing live on camera or if they need to have a band playing in a specific scene. Um, If we're singing a song that was written by someone else, we need to have the rights for that cleared before we go and shoot it. Otherwise, you know, that's a waste of a shot day. So uh, we take part in all of those things. And then in the post-production, which is the bulk of it, is, you know, going through the edit what songs has the editor put in there? Are they going to be kind to us and put in smaller songs? Or are we going to have some big things that we're going to overcome with some really popular music that maybe we can't fit within the budget? So we're going to go through and work out, okay, what scenes are we going to have music? What is most important? We have a big song, but it's in the background. Would we rather spend the money on a larger song someplace else? So we do sort of the troubleshooting of that. Then we also negotiate the rights, find all the rights holders, which will sometimes be like the greatest mysteries that have ever been written (laughs) and the biggest pain in your butt. But you go through that and you negotiate all the rights. Then you have massive stacks of paperwork to deal with. And then you also do the cue sheets at the end, which is where you record all the cues of music that are used and then uh, who the rights holders are there and send it to unions because that um, is how artists can get back end from their performing arts organization. So that means that's the sort of continual money that happens. It's a really great way to talk to musicians because sometimes our budgets are small in the onset. When you get involved with a production, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously in the dream world, you get involved before they go to camera. Yeah. But do they come to you with song ideas or do they expect you to be like, okay, we need something that's eerie pop. And then you have to recommend songs. I think it really depends. Some um, directors or showrunners and creators have a very specific vision of the film the whole way through. And that includes music. And some people are a bit more focused on other story aspects and really want to leave it up to you to be able to pull into creative. Um, Both can still mean a lot of creative work because not every song is obtainable within the confines of what you have, uh, particularly with budget. And then sometimes just with timing, Um, there's some artists that you really just need to give 
um, yourself a lot of time in order to get the rights for them. And if you don't have that time, it really comes down to there. I think my longest was um, seven months for doing a clearance. But I recently heard, obviously, everyone's talking about Kate Bush and Stranger Things, but that I think was like a two year negotiation. Whoa, that seems crazy like completely insane (laughs) it's insane but like I guess for me I'm like okay not crazy not like absolutely this makes no sense it's more like wow that sucks but I can understand how it could take that long so do you have a folder of all kinds of music that you collect that you categorize that yeah I'm yeah, so can you talk about kind of your personal process with how yeah. actually- so um every music supervisor is different in the way that they go about looking for music some really rely on um the labels and publishers and sync agents that they work with and they send out briefs and then they get selection so the brief will be like what type of production is it what the budget range is, what any sort of tonal or musical cues or any special things, like we need an artist that needs to be from Toronto or anything like that. And you get sent those and then you sift through that to make your pitch. My favorite thing is search for it. So I store a lot of music on my hard drive, which is like the most precious thing in my life. And I, um, you know, have things categorized. I do a lot of mentor sessions with musicians, a lot of doing one-on-ones and speed dating with musicians or sync agents to sort of get as much music as possible and to find what's going on. Um, I have all the streaming services. So I just casually, you know, listen to things and ask friends, what are you liking? What are you interested in? I always say that I just keep my ears open and then, you know, find things, save things, and maybe hopefully you can use it and keep it in your back pocket. There's sometimes you have a song that you've been waiting and wanting to use for like years and continuously pitching it and maybe it never gets it doesn't get in then when it finally someone says yes it's like the greatest moment ever and you're like yes someone finally gets it and so that's really exciting so yeah so just getting music from all places but it does mean my inbox is quite hefty um so that can sometimes be a catch-22 and trying to intake all of this but so you have to be mindful of that but yeah I really like to keep open and find uh new artists so artists reach out to you all the time asking for them to be included in movies and for to consider be considered by you is there anything that you um that will make you say yes or no to certain artists it really comes I love this part of the job versus other things in the music industry because I think metrics have really taken a front seat and like virality in in music in the music industry how they're finding new artists or putting money behind new artists or what determines, I guess, a successful career, even though longevity isn't necessarily matched with viralness. Um, But with this, it really comes down to the songs. So I get to really just listen to the music and see whether it fits. And just because I don't like something personally, I could still see the value in it for sync and then for or licensing in some of our productions. So one thing that I 
won't look at people's things, uh, emails when they send it to me is if there isn't a lot of information, as I like to know, you know, who the artist is, a little bit about them, you know, where they're from. If someone doesn't send their music right away or maybe says like, hey, I'm interested, can I send you music in the future? And I'd rather you just sort of do it right then and there. If you're going to use your opening, you better just put it all out there because, you know, it just requires too much follow-up without getting to the meat of what you want to hear. Um, some people can sometimes be a little rude <laughs> when they reach out, which is mind-boggling or really you know, say certain things like this is going to help your career. You really need to listen to this and, you know, not really winning me over, (laughs) you know, if I'm looking at 20 to 50 additional emails, that might be a way to sift through them. There's definitely some don'ts, but I think it more comes down to like decorum. What producers often uh, don't know about Mm -hmm. music clearance and common mistakes that you see producers make all the time. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's really great for people to use music supervisors. I think everybody has their own, well, everybody does have their own connection to music um, and it's a personal thing. So I think that sort of approachability of music makes people think that it's going to be an easy process. Um, But once you sort of dig in, there's a lot of questions that you need to ask that are make these small mistakes. So, so every piece of music, every song has two sides, the master, which is the recording, and then the publishing, which is the songwriters. So, you know, we say a song is 200% and of those 100%, it can be sliced and diced any amount of ways. You know, I've had songs that had seven, publi- seven uh, publishing rights distributed. So you have to make sure you have all seven of those and not all databases are um, up to date. Not all labels or people know who else owns what, or like lots of deals have changed. Um, I've looked at some, you know, songs in the 1920s. That's really tough to sort of find out. And you really have to dig and pull on strings to see who actually owns what. Because, you know, someone can say they own something, but they only own a piece of it. And so by way, it's illegal if you don't to use it. If you don't, you find everybody that's on it. Um, So making sure, asking specific language, what's the percentage ownership that you have on this? Because it can really come down to like 0.5, 0 0.1, 1.25. That makes the difference. And it's absurd. Uh, You know, sometimes you'll even come across, wow, we're at 110% on this side. You're like, okay, well, that's for everybody to sort out at the end, but at least we're over, over 100. And then that's just, you know, how they're going to pay out and what the papering is going to look like. You know, there's different masters that you're using. So there could be a master that was recorded originally in like the 1960s and say the band did a recreation of it in 1999. Okay, which one are you guys using? Are you using the 1999 or 1963? 
and that might be different rights holders. A lot of people may re-record their music in order to uh, have the rights to it. So we saw that with Taylor Swift making Taylor's version of her songs so that she owned them instead of, I think it is Scooter Braun who had bought the masters. So you wanna make sure, okay, do we want Taylor's version or are we using the original? There might be some slight differences in it. Also a big one is sampling. Sampling is a nightmare, <laughs> but it frequently happens. And I think um, the way that people see sampling used out in the uh, in music sung and you know listened on streaming services, it's different once you come down to licensing it. So Kanye West uses a lot of samples, and you know those play on the radio. You do you you, you hear it but not all of them are always cleared. So when you want to use it in a production, you can't. Or, you know, maybe you'll have to go through the process of actually clearing the sample. And that's a huge undertaking. And will those artists want to sometimes, you know, maybe they don't because they felt that they weren't cleared to begin with and that's not a great relationship but you know you can find it in any genre but particularly uh, I find hip-hop and, and electronic music to have samples and you can't always uh, hear them some you can really pick out some just go over your head the same thing for covers you know there might be a song that someone did a cover of but it's a really B-side of a very popular artist that people don't really know. So, you know, if you aren't sure, or is this a cover, is this a sample, are really important questions to ask. Sometimes, you know, those artists might not be fully aware of it. And they're like, I only use this small part of a Nina Simone song. You can barely hear it. Yeah, but I know that now and that's illegal. Can we re-record that? Or is that a major part of the song that, you know, with that gone, the song doesn't make sense? Are they going to be able to get into the studio to correct that? Is this worth jumping into that process? So those are a couple of like key questions that, um, you know, producers may or may not know to ask or may miss on that. Um, but it's certainly a roller coaster because even when you ask all the right questions, it doesn't mean that you're getting all the right answers. I've had instances of, of um, working on clearing rights and a band says, yep, we're all good. We're good to go. We've had numerous correspondence. It's all good. Then at the very end, we're going to paperwork. They say, oh yeah, I'm with this major so you can finish up with them. And it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I asked you, you said you could do this. Now we have like a major involved. Doesn't mean that it's impossible, but you know, that adds some more days onto it. We're starting net new on this course, on this clearance. And what does that do in terms of price? You know, where they thought they were indie. So we had a lower price range. Can we afford if it goes higher? But it's a lot of problem solving as you go and a lot of like, oh my gosh, e emails or calls and being like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> so it's good to have a music supervisor to make sure that they're asking all those right questions and just to manage the caseload, especially if you have a lot of songs that you're going to have in your production. That's a lot of different rights holders that you have to keep on top of and, you know, making sure day to day, again, those can take 
a short amount of time to turn around or a long amount of time to turn around. So someone to stay on top of it is definitely really helpful. Definitely. I think you gave a really good summary of a lot of the big issues that I'm sure (laughs) anyone who's tried to clear music will be immediately able to relate to to that struggle. (laughs) So in terms of public domain, that's Mm -hmm. something we hear a lot that producers want to rely on. Your opinion on it? So for public domain, I always say triple, quadruple check. There's some things that you may think are public domain, but aren't. And um, they're public domain, I think in Canada, I just saw like a guild quick email. I think they may have been like changing some of the rules and some of the rules for public domain are different by, um, by country. So something could be uh, public domain in the US and maybe not in Canada or not in Europe. So if you're just running in the U.S., then that's fine. But generally, especially for long format, you're going to want to include the whole world. So you don't want to to miss that. So we have, um, sorry, there's also that um, public domain rule of thumb is 75 years after the composer has died. So not after the songs released, not after, after the, the song, composers died, after the composers died. So even and when I was looking for music in the 1920s, I'm like, damn, you, you lived a long time, yeah. you know, like 78 is when they died. And I'm like, well, there's not there. And you're really just going through or some people, cause it's so old, you can't find information on them or it's so yeah, public domain, I would also triple, quadruple check and especially do that for um, for holiday songs. Some are public domain, some aren't public domain. Um, you know, you really want to make sure just because they're so widely known and widely used. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just go under the umbrella. These are all public domain, but not all of them are. Another thing about public domain is that means the uh, the song is public domain, the publishing is public domain, but not necessarily the master that you're using. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at, um, say, a, a public domain Christmas song, but a Bing Crosby cover of it. So you're going to have to pay the Bing Crosby side of it. Yeah, you're giving such good information about it. Okay, good. <laughs> no, honestly, because I think that the way that music intersects with film and television can be uh, more complex mm-hmm. than people initially think. Yeah. Um, and there's this whole other set of rules and a whole other set of obligations that you take on that are d- distinct and totally unique from the film and television world. And I think, honestly, I see people get caught out on it all the time. Yeah. And so I, I hope that producers who are listening to this episode are going Oh, oh, okay. Now I know what I need to do on my next. Yeah, exactly. Or like, <laughs> and maybe wow. I should just hire a music zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ooh, do I want to go down that road? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so another area that I want to talk about is royalties, mm-hmm. and when you have to worry about um, paying royalties on, you know, maybe musicians that have performed live for you in a film, whether any other royalties uh, are required, and and 
what you need to be conscious of? Yeah. So it really, um, goes down to the unions and if it's a union production, cause that's going to be the subset of rules that you have to abide by for on-screen performances, or if you're doing any recording, if it's, you know, actors that are main actors, they're doing the singing recording, then that can sometimes be rolled into, you know, what you're covering for them union wise anyways, um, on screen, uh, musicians, you know, those have to be paid separately. And then if you're going into, you know, score, your composer can handle who they're working with to create the score. One of the big things is like the key is the cue sheet, which happens at the end of the production, which is accounting for all of the um, songs that are used and the score cues that are used. So that is a big one that you'll submit to uh, your performing rights organization, be it like SOCAN, BMI, ASCAP, PRS, and so forth. But that's going to have, that's going to help the royalty collection for um, those artists. They need to be labeled in there. You'll have um, you know, what their publishing company is, and it's all based on the uh, songwriters, not the master owners, what their uh, representation is, what like the IPI number is for their performing rights organization. And that's what gets submitted. So it counts for every piece. You say how long it's used and that's where they start to collect royalties. What the percentages are that uh, artists get really depends on where um, the production's being seen. Broadcast is still the number one and yields the greatest royalties. Um, streaming, you know, everything's moving towards streaming, so hopefully those catch up, but I think it's still sort of in the Spotify numeration world of not very high. <laughs> Broadcast and traditional medias are still king there, but that's a really exciting and really important part for artists in having those cue sheets working is that if a, a show gets syndicated around the world, that can end up being a good amount of money and that's passive income for an artist. Can we talk about budgets? Mm-hmm. Every song is different and every situation is different, but can you give everybody an idea of what it costs to license a song based on, you know, whether they're indie, when they're, whether they're worth a major and kind of some considerations that go into building a budget for music? Yeah. So I think, you really need to, when you're negotiating, like you're being considerate of all the aspects of, of the, the film. Is it a big production company behind it? Where is the film going to be seen? Are you going for a film festival and heading into sales and hoping to have things, you know, all done there? Is it like a web series that you're, you're self-distributing? Because that can sort of help with negotiating on budget. I would say there's, uh, if you're looking at independent artists, you know, you'd love to give them as much money as possible, but sometimes that can end up being quite low within like the hundred dollars, uh, hundreds of dollars. So you really have to have that interaction. Does this work for both parties? Mm -hmm. You know, the exposure narrative doesn't always work so much anymore because, you know, everybody needs to make money and musicians are arguably very hard hit from when COVID came about. So um, 
you know, that's where if you're working on a broadcast show and you can talk to the royalties that they have the opportunity of getting on the back end, that might make it a bit more appealing or, you know, other different ways about it. If you're getting into songs that are charting and charting right then, you're subject to charts. So when uh, TikTok starts bringing all these old songs and they're becoming viral hits again, their price goes up. So not like Dreams by Fleetwood Mac was a pretty costly song already, but then went double fold when it became trendy on TikTok again. So we're subject to charts. And when you're looking at sort of popular songs or big songs that are particularly by American artists, you have to pay attention to three different payments. So you have the master that you're going to be paying and clearing, you have the publishing, and then you also have to look at the unions. And the unions is a separate incremental cost. And so that makes sure that all of the uh, musicians that worked on it were paid out. But again, that's an incremental cost. So if you're already paying a lot for the license, then you have that, the union fees on top of it to be mindful of. I would say for um, mid-tier artists right now, like the 10K range for long format, as you start to go up into like 30, if you want like classic rock, you're in the like 50 plus range, depending on what you're doing. Um, you know, but it, don't be extremely frightened because we can help look at what that budget means and where our priorities are. Cause it may just mean, okay, we can't fit in 10 large songs. We can only do one large song. So what is the moment that we need it the most? What's mm -hmm. the most impactful place? Also, it's really great. Like I love being able to support indie artists because um, it's cost-effective for me, but also it helps for that element of discovery. You're supporting independent music, but also giving them uh, the ability to connect with another audience. So, you know, a lot of people may know large musicians or be more prone to listening and finding their music through the radio that might not be always conducive to a cost-effective production. So I think you should be mindful about also how many cues you're using. Can something be score instead of being a needle drop? So dropping the song in, or, you know, if you start a song and then stop it and then bring it back up, that can count as two uses. So either you negotiate saying that it's going to be that way, or you can just keep it running and maybe just lower the volume and then bring it back up. You know, so it ends up being one cue instead of two. Hmm. There's all these little tr tricks that you can do to sort of make your budget go the longest way. Um, but we always have uh, a come to Jesus moment where I say, okay, this is what you've put in. This is how much it could cost. And yeah. everyone's like, okay, oh, wow. Oh, wow. And writing letters or knowing somebody um, can work, but it's not guaranteed and you have to be mindful of timing. So mm. having plan Bs or, you know, running two roads at the same time is always good because you don't want to run the clock. Can I ask what the most expensive song you've ever 
like ever seen get into a movie? Oh, I've licensed a song that was like $90,000. For a minute of it or the whole song? Uh, no, not for the whole song. And it actually, it was supposed to be like 70, I guess. And um, we had it locked in because uh, you have to tell them occasionally, especially for bigger ones, you have to say, okay, what, how long is it running for? So we let them know how long it's running for. And then in the playback, they added 15 seconds onto it. And I'm like, guys, we had it stuck in the, like, you can't go over this, but you know, you're at playback, it's, it's locked in. And so we tried hard to just, can we just keep going with it and keep it at the same one? But they were really steadfast in, in maintaining that it needed to be incremental. And was that just one side of it or was that for the whole song? That was for the whole song. Yeah. So it was for the whole song at least, but yeah, it was expensive. And when you get, I also do ads when you get into the ad side. Oh yeah. Like $200,000, Yeah. Whoa. That's crazy. And then union fees on top of it. <laughs> that's crazy. Okay. What fun. So my last question uh, for you is what is a piece of Canadian content right now that you are loving that you want to recommend? There's this director, uh, Kelly Fife Marshall, who's wonderful. She's going to have a film at TIFF and she had a film at TIFF a couple of years ago as well. And I'm just following her career and that's been really exciting. What's her and film at TIFF this year? It is called When Morning Comes. Okay. Yeah. So look out for that one. It's going to be at TIFF. It's filmed in Jamaica. I'm really excited for that one. And then I'm going to like talk about one that I worked on that I really liked, um, sort of, which is a CBC HBO Max show that came out, I guess, November of last year. And it was like an amazing production and story and wonderful to work on we got to do something really unique with the music and I got to handpick artists that I wanted to work with and they actually won a Peabody award uh, for the production and that was just like a really wonderful one and it takes place in Toronto and I feel like it's such a great view of Toronto which you know you're always trying to capture and yeah so I think that was really marvelous. That's amazing. Well, they're working you. on season two right now. I know. I can't wait. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. And I learned so much about, um, you know, what it means to be a music supervisor and all the little things that go into it. And I hope that people listening will, uh, will take a lot away from it. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for having me. 